Hey everybody, welcome to Artifice episode 102. I feel like it's maybe been a minute since I've just said thank you so much for listening. So if you're a person who's here, you're tuning in right now, thank you so much for listening. It means so much to me. I can see, um, you know, I don't have perfect data on like how many listens there are because, um, you know, the listens come from all different places and uh, there's not like perfect tracking. But, you know, I do see people listening um, and and I just look at those numbers and think, I wonder who those people are. But mostly I think, wow, I'm glad those people are listening, whoever they are, wherever they are. So thank you. Um, by the time you guys are hearing this, I should be done tracking this new album. I was in the studio today and we we're working on the title track and doing all of the millions of layers of amazing, majestic background vocals. And I'll tell you what, I'm on a high because it sounds so good. And it's just really satisfying to see my songs kind of come to life in just the way that I imagined them. It feels really good. Um, the other thing that will feel really good is for you guys to hear from my guest for today, who is a really amazing woman who I'm so happy to have met. I feel, um, you know, just kind of like an instant trust with her and admiration and respect. And I'm going to tell you about her right now. Becky Pyatt-Davidson is a former tenured assistant professor of English, a published author, a literary researcher, a storyteller, and a longtime meditation practitioner for whom meditation was a game changer six years ago. She works at the intersection of story, music, and tech, creating hero's journey meditation experiences for listeners who love her team's combination of world building and wisdom. Along with Caleb Loveless and Dane Holmes of Slow Wave Studios, Davidson is creating both a product and a practice aimed at helping creatives embrace a new and novel form of meditation. And I just have to tell you guys, I, I have my own plug. Um, I got an account on Lotimus um, after interviewing Becky. And I mean, during our interview, I, like I said before, I was just instantly impressed and um, taken with, you know, what she's doing and everything she had to say. So um, I... I have been logged into Lotomus and have been going through some of these meditations and they really are different and so special. Um, I love this idea of combining world building and wisdom, um, you know, a sort of combination of, uh, yeah, it, to me, it feels like, you know, all of the um, kind of beautiful elevated elements of like fantasy and mythology um, combined with like, self-worth practice or, or something, at least that's what it feels like to me. Um, uh, from what I've seen so far, it seems like some of the stories or, or journeys, I think, um, they're called journeys. Some of the journeys, um, which are all audio are kind of calming. And some of the journeys are sort of empowering or, you know, different kinds of things per what you need. But, you know, again, for creatives who are looking for, a, a different kind of, you know, centering practice or a different kind of, um, you know, way to sort of like do something a little bit different with your brain. It's really awesome. And, um, you know, there's nothing I love more than talking with people who are really thinking outside the box and doing something that's, you know, sort of, um, un unbeaten ground. And this, this feels like that. So, um, so if that sounds great to you, 
go check out Lotomis. I can't recommend it enough. And, um, and Becky narrates them herself with her gorgeous and soothing voice, which you will have the pleasure of hearing throughout this next, you know, hour or so. So that's my plug. Go check out Lotomis. And um, for right now, please give your attention to Miss Becky Davidson. Here she comes. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Um, okay, so I was reading your bio on the Lotomus website, um, and, I, and I couldn't find that much information about your earlier life. And I like to talk about creative development a lot on this podcast. So let's start back at the beginning. Um, and I'd love for you to just tell me like what you were like as a creative child and maybe kind of about your creative environment as a, as a small child, like under the age of 12. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I was read to a ton. So I had an early love of books. My mom read to me. I mean, I remember being on her lap. I remember the feel of her bare thighs. You know, she shaved her thighs. I think yeah. a lot of women did in the 60s. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but I remember the prickly feel. I always will associate that feeling with being very supported and safe. Wow. Um, and of course, you know, her voice reading. I remember my dad reading to me. So when I was a little bit older, I don't know, four, five, six, seven, um, every night it was a ritual. So it was hop in bed, you know, dad's in the middle and my brother and I are yeah. kind of flanking him and he's reading. Um, fairy tales and books of all kinds. And often, you know, I think he was a frustrated performer himself. He was a former superior court judge, but I think he really wanted to be like a a Broadway actor and singer, but read to me a ton. And so I just had this early love affair with books and began quite young, just building out in my mind, this fantasy life. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. No, there were, um, I don't know. Reality was very, it was a very kind of hazy proposition for me. I felt like mm-hmm. the magical world, the world of books and fantasy and imagination and the real world sort of, I don't know, like it was just a, it was a very fluid thing. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. I mean, I think I, I was a very kind of like dreamy child as yes. well and loved fantasy from an early age. Um, and I, I want to just say, I love this answer. I think you know, I ask, I always start with this question. I always start with like, what, what were you like as a creative child? And a lot of people will say to me, like, you know, I'm only interviewing adult creatives, like professional creatives. And a lot of these, you know, professional creatives will say like, well, I wasn't really creative until I was older, which of course is like not true. But I think lots of times we fixate on the productivity of creativity instead of like just creative consumption, you know, like creatively consuming books and like creative kind of inner thoughts. Um, so I, I love that like your answer is like I was read to, I think that's really beautiful. And, um, I certainly, I certainly feel like a a kinship with that idea as well. Um, so can you tell me like, so I don't, when I said before, like, I wasn't sure what you were doing, like before this project you're working on now. Um, 
so I don't know kind of like specifically what to ask, but what were you interested in any particular mediums in like your youth? Poetry, okay. for sure. And music. I mean, I took piano for years, did a lot of singing. Um, you know, it was just a literary musical home. I love that. And um, when my dad discovered that not only did I love poetry, but that, that I kind of had a knack for just, you know, rhyming, um, he would commission me to write little poems. Wow. Yeah. So, the, I mean, they, my parents made much of what they thought was my, you know, I don't know, literary talent or whatever. But... I just loved reading poetry as well. Yeah. So, and I remember um, a couple of early uh, grade school teachers getting very involved in my journey to become like this, you know, poetess. And cool. that enthusiasm spurred me on too. So I remember writing a poem that, um, you know, won a local contest and then it went on to one like to win this uh, state contest. And so, but I think the danger, honestly, of beginning to identify with your talent such as it mm -hmm, is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know that I was anything that special. I just, I just loved poetry, but, um, then your identity somehow as a creative seems to hinge on whether you're getting the recognition totally. or having success. That's tricky. Yes. I was, I'm, you brought this up, but I was like, I was heading there next <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, Cause I love talking about creative identity. Um, I, I'd like to talk more about this. I'm not sure like specifically what I want to ask, but I, I think I'll say, I also loved poetry as a small child and had a knack for rhyming. And I think it's because there was, there were nursery rhyme books sure. in my childhood. Um, and I started writing poetry early and entered little contests, but I wasn't getting validation from adults in my life. I mean, I guess I had validation in the sense that like I mailed my little poems, you know, and got, um, which I think is so brilliant, you know, a, a kind of self-advocacy that I think is crucial. I, I did learn self-advocacy super early. Um, I've talked about this a ton, but my, bo I think both of my parents are narcissists. Um, <laughs> like my mom for sure. And I don't know, my mom passed away a couple of years ago. And as I've kind of gotten oh, to sorry. know my dad, it's okay. My life is like less complicated now. Um, but as I've gotten to know my dad, like out of the context of my mom, I suspect that there's problems there as well. Um, but, but I didn't, I didn't get validation from my parents, like kind of ever. Um, so this is, it's interesting to think about these identity things. Cause I think for me, I certainly was identifying like as a creative and felt like that was the thing or some of the things that were most kind of valuable about me, but it was kind of detached from validation. Um, I don't, again, I don't know that I have a question specifically, but like what, what else do you think about these like, you know, childhood art identity you know, it's interesting. Thanks. I remember um, after winning that that little contest as a nine-year-old, I had written that poem one night when I was tucked away in my room. My parents were having a big party. And I thought, well, I'm going to write poetry while the adults are drinking <laughs> and reveling. Yeah. So, and I have always sworn that I sort of channeled something that night. I just got really quiet. I got really still. I wanted to write a poem about night and stars. And so here came this free verse poem. Yeah, so there cool. was no rhyme. Wow. And I loved what came out. And then after all the recognition around it afterwards, and we're talking about a small life in a little town in California. It wasn't that big of a deal. But, to you. but it was yeah. everything to me. But what happened was um, when suddenly I had this idea that I had to succeed at this, meaning sure. like for me, the currency was I, 
I trade, you know, what I produce for the validation of adults. Right, right, right. And just the pressure of feeling that I had to produce something that would get this great reaction, starting just with my parents, was um, tricky enough that as a nine-year-old, I started to experience what I now would call writer's block. Wow. And I remember going to my parents one night, like kind of, you know, teary and saying, I I can't do this anymore. I don't know that I, I don't know if I'm a poet anymore. So I've always been interested, maybe like you, in what is the self-talk, the mindset around continuing to produce, whether you're little or big, why are you doing it? What are you trading it for? How do you keep going? And for me, the big question now is a woman interested in meditation um, and stillness. Like the question is, how do you dial into or touch into um, what I think Deepak calls the field of awareness? And that may not even be his term because I know he's essentially packaging in the best way, um, Ayurvedic science going back thousands of years. But that idea that there's this field of awareness or consciousness around us that we can kind of connect with as a way to channel whatever our gifts are or whatever we want them to be. Yeah, I like that a lot. And then to just show up and do the work, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. regardless of whether it feels stuck-ish or free-flowing our job is yeah. to show up and be ready to make something. Radical acceptance. Ra- oh, you know yep. Tara Brock. I sure do. <laughs> Gosh, that's a beautiful book. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah. And I think radical acceptance starts with, of course, self and also the moment. Totally. That presence. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't and maybe the more. moment feels really full of shimmer. And maybe it just feels like, um, you know, there's a load of laundry still in the washer after yes. two days and, and it's a little stinky in there. Well, <laughs> so. It's such a lovely thing to hear someone else articulate these things because I so feel this. Like, I really do. Like, sometimes I feel these moments that are so dreamy and shimmery, as you say, and I like them so much and, like, want to sit in them and, like, soak up every little bit. And I also really like these moments where it's like, what stupid little things are on my to-do list? Like, you know, just these kind of practical, like, I don't know, I feel like that kind of, I feel like that, that that actual presence and that actual radical acceptance. Um, it's so different from the way that I was raised. I, I read Tara Brock's book probably six or seven years ago now. Mm. And I feel like I've incorporated like, like genuinely incorporated like a fair amount of it. And it's such a relief. (laughs) Like it's such a relief. Isn't it though? Because whatever our narratives are, that are likely to queue up in our in our heads, just welcoming what is, which doesn't mean you can't have boundaries and it doesn't mean that you can't have a sense of self-efficacy. Like if things are happening that don't feel good to you, then the answer is no. But yeah. just the regular stuff that happens every day that you're like, I don't want that. Yeah. yeah. You know, my my 17-year-old son, um, who's quite affectionate, but you know, is in the stage where he's got little nicknames for me that I sometimes don't like. Sometimes he'll call me home slice. And I think <laughs> like I have this image of myself as the mother figure in my house. And I think, do I want to be called home slice by this boy? But you <laughs> know what? <laughs> At the same time, I think sometimes because of the work I've done, just getting still and yeah. having a sitting practice, I think what else would I want? Yeah. Why wouldn't I welcome this moment? Yeah. And this person. Yeah. And this... this, like, would I want him to be somebody else? Right. Yeah. So there's always that dance that you're doing between, like, 
do I want this? Do I not want this? What does that mean? Jack Cornfield, who's one of my gurus, I've never met him, but I think I've read every book he's written. Um, and he's, he's essentially teaching Buddhism, um, by way of Vipassana or insight meditation. But he talks about how really there are only (laughs) three sort of mood states that humans sit in and one is grasping or wanting. Yeah. One is aversion, not wanting. Yeah. And one is ambivalence or mm. indifference. Yeah. Like come what may. Yeah. And so I think in some ways I'm a wantist. I, I want lots of things. And in some ways I have aversion that I deal with. But I, I think when I'm starting to feel aversive or like I don't want this, I've been working now for years to kind of unpack then what's the story I'm telling myself about why this feels so unpleasant and sometimes it's an old narrative yes and it's not necessarily true so it's Mm -hmm. useful to be able to interrogate those little stories first by having an awareness of them but then by saying is this true yeah do I know that it's true right um and then to say and does it matter should it matter am I okay Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so those like those kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't mean like disembodied, but like kind of removed, like looking, questioning, like, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, and not even that it needs to be like unemotional, but just like somewhat unbiased, like just, you know, like the part of your brain that can sort of like paradigm shift and just look around and to be the observer. Yes. Of yourself, of your stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes as they're unfolding so that you can manage what's going on in the moment, maybe a little more wisely. Amen. Yeah. I'm definitely not like perfect at that, but I, but I have gotten way better at it. And yeah, it, it, there's no better word for it than relief. Like it's just, it's, it's such a, it's such a relief to like, you know, um, touch on that skill set, Um, and to kind of be like, everything's actually okay. Right. Or this is really not okay. And it's okay for me to leave absolutely you know, or to exit or whatever. Absolutely. Um, maybe this is like just a small thing, but I'd, I'd love to hear you. I, I feel like the way you described this moment of your parents having this party and kind of being like, I'm going to write poetry. You clearly remember it. Um, can you tell me like what that felt like? Like, what were you kind of like recognizing about yourself or how were you seeing yourself or, you know, like, I know you're just even a small child, but I love those kinds of stories. Sure. You know, I, I think from a young age, that's bear crying, by the way. Oh, <laughs> he's welcome he, to come in here and he, join us he for gets the conversation. Scared of, um, walking on the floor, oh. so he may you may hear moaning. Well, don't think I'm weird, but I'm literally sending him blessings. So I don't think that's weird. I want I him want, to feel safe and happy in his bear house. To have all the blessings. Good. Well, we can all send him meta. Um, no, I remember thinking like about myself from a young age as a seeker. Yeah. And so wanting access to creative ideas, whatever that meant for me. I remember sometimes lying in bed at night and thinking like, what is all this? Like having these (laughs) thoughts about the cosmos and me as this tiny speck in it all. So, I mean, I, you know, I think I was a super weirdo in a a good way from a young age. Yeah, I love it. And I just... um, I don't know. I really wanted to be able to access more of the, I keep calling it shimmer, I guess, in this conversation, but I recognized that it was there, that I'd kind of touched into it a few times. 
I wanted more of that. And I think um, one of the central questions for creatives is when you when you have a sense of what you want to make, what craft you want to apply, what, yeah. what you want to unfold in the world, how do you show up for that mm-hmm. feeling that you're... Um, I love to feel like I'm channeling something. Yeah, it's that big magic thing. Totally a big magic thing. But there's also an element of showing up regardless of how you feel. Right. Regardless of whether you feel sort of like you're, you know, aligned with the planets or the cosmos or whatever. So there's this always this um, little dance that you're doing between, um, you know, feeling like you've you've got access to the ideas that are going to power your craft on the one hand and on the other, like you've got access to the mojo that's going to, yes. <laughs> yes. you know, nudge you to sit yeah. with whatever it is you're doing. And even if you're not in the mood, yeah. because so often maybe you're not. Right. There's a... Um, <clears throat> bear, come on in here. Bear, come in. Come in here, bear. He's too scared. Aww. He might make it in. If he comes in, he'll come in like running. He'll be like, I'm going for it. I hope he does. <laughs> I hope he comes and leaps I up hope. onto your lap. He he definitely will come see you and let you pet his head for Good. a long time. I hope time. so. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> if he makes it in, that's what he'll do. Um, but yes, yeah, so yeah, there's a... Ahead. And then I had a question. Yeah, there's a, there's a um, podcaster whose work I love, Rich Roll. Okay. He's in his 50s. Cool. He's an ultra athlete and... Um, recovering alcoholic. He's doing some important work talking to people who are doing extreme things in the best way, whether it's in the um, sports or athletic space or in the kind of health and nutrition or whatever. But he has this mantra, um, mood follows action. Yeah, totally. And I feel like that's so important for creatives to repeat to themselves because maybe you're feeling inspired Maybe you feel like your muse is right there whispering into your ear. Maybe you don't. Maybe yeah. you're just, maybe your mind is on your, well, your laundry. I and- talk about this with my students all the time and I, and I feel it so much. It, it is, again, this kind of radical acceptance practice of like, sometimes I feel, ma- sometimes we feel magical and sometimes we feel like these ideas are just coming and knocking on the door. And sometimes it's like, um, what I wanted to say before is like, this is also creativity. It's like high level creativity to take your weird bored mood or like your, you know, depressed mood or your grumpy mood or whatever and find a way to like start your creative process there. I'm so resonating to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that I have found I get better at. Like, you know, I, like, I, I think there was a time in my life where I felt like I could only be creative if I was feeling those kind of like big magic feelings. And, um, now I feel like, you know, after years of kind of like being grumpy, being, you know, being depressed and, and choosing to like enter a creative space anyway, I feel so much less like scared of it and feel like something will happen. Like it might not be, um, you know, what I sometimes call in the podcast, like the capital A art, like it might not be like the most magical stuff, but I might, you know, make like an outline for a new kind of idea or I might like, you know, crack, crack something open with like just a marketing thing, you know, maybe something that's a little bit less, uh, yeah, I keep just saying magical, but, or less shimmery. I love that too. 
Um, but yeah, that feels, it feels like a really important lesson and creative skill to like foster. Well, and so two things. One is I love the idea of taking, you know, your, your chore that you need to do or your mood that you're struggling with maybe and making that into something that, uh, feels like it could have artistic potential. Right. 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 Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, in meditation, sometimes you sit and you can feel yourself get really quiet. And there's this, there's this, um, sense that when your thoughts get thinner and sort of airier and, and the silence is expanding, it's a heady, beautiful experience. Yeah, yeah. And some days you're just thinking about your laundry, the fact that your kid calls you home slice <laughs> and maybe you don't like that. Yeah. Or your laundry. And so, you know, yeah. some days your thoughts kind of ping around and your practice is restless and maybe you feel like I didn't get anything out of that. Yeah. But you sat. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's that high level creativity to kind of go like, what can this give me? Like, maybe it's a small thing, but I'm just, I'm, th I'm thinking too, like, you know, I teach singing and when my students are sick or, you know, or, you know, they have like a allergies, um, you know, I, I will say to them, like, what a, what if a beautiful opportunity to practice on your sick voice? Because oh, I like, love that. I love that your so voice much. will keep getting sick. <laughs> like This will never stop happening. Right. So, yeah, I think it's a similar it's a similar principle. And if it gives you an opportunity to manage yourself with mm -hmm. maybe a little more grace and gentleness yeah. or imagination. Yes. Yeah. So whether, you know, whatever you're creating or whatever you're doing, there's an opportunity to be with it, yeah. to welcome it, to kind of come into the moment to be with it. Yeah. Um, I, I so love that. Thank you. I love it too. I'm loving talking with you. Likewise. Um, yay. <laughs> so um, when you were young and identifying as a seeker, I love that. I'm like, I'm so feeling that too. Um, did you have, like, were there, was that challenged when, like in your youth? Yeah, no, it was. Can I can remember walking home from junior that? high one day with a friend and this was a friend who somehow we got on the subject of poetry and she was mentioning like, oh, and you wrote that poem that, that won that contest or whatever. And I kind of jumped in to say, you know, that night was really like, I don't remember exactly what I said or whether I used the word cool, I might have, but I remember saying, you know, that night was, that was so cool. And I felt like, you know, like there was something bigger than me that was sort of like talking to me or whatever. I mean, I was using these like maybe 11 or 12 year old words to describe something that in fact now I would call numinous yeah. okay yeah and she got really quiet we're walking along <laughs> like walking down the street and she goes you are so weird yeah and and you're not old enough to kind of realize that that's <laughs> and I remember <laughs> feeling my heart sort yeah. of close a little bit yeah. and like I felt a little constricted suddenly inside so um, that's tricky when you're young to feel like you want to, like you identify as a creative and you want to do and make, you know, creative things, whatever that looks like for you. And to feel like your peers absolutely yeah. don't get it. That's, I so know that feeling for, for me, it was my parents, but, and I was thinking about this, I, I think I, I just turned 33 and I feel like I'm at an age where like, I'm starting to kind of like 
be able to process some of these things in a different way. And it's been a couple of years now since my mom died and, um, I went no contact with my dad a year ago. So I feel like I'm like, I'm just on the cusp of like what I hope will be things that I look back on as like really good years, like really positive changes. But, um, I was just thinking about this the other day, like my parents used to like ground me from reading, like when I wasn't being naughty or anything, I just, they wanted me to be with other kids, you know? And like, just that kind of really subtle, I mean, I guess it's not even subtle, but like rejection of kind of like my, like essence as a child. Like, I think I'm just starting to like recover from that stuff. No, in fact, it's a, I think it's a disavowal yes. of yeah. the values that you had. Totally. That's painful. Yeah, it really was. And it, and it, and they really were values. It was like, I want to be like reading Jane Eyre. <laughs> That's what I want. You know, I read that book as yeah. maybe a 13 year old and I've said many times that book changed my life. I don't know what it was about that story and the way it's told, but I identified so much with... She, well, she was kind of a rule breaker, yeah, <laughs> like, but not in like a wild way or something. I don't know. But I also read it when I was, I think like 12, 13 and yeah, but I was, I was reading a lot of things like that at that time. And we had just moved to a new neighborhood and it was kind of a mean girls vibe in the, in the neighborhood we lived in. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's okay. But I just felt like this is not important. <laughs> like I know how to make friends. I'm not antisocial. Like I don't need to be making these friends at this time. I need to read Jane Eyre. <laughs> like, right. I need to be drawing. I need to be practicing my piano, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it, re it really was like a, and I, and I, you know, that's why I said like, with your friend, you know, I think I, at that age, I'm, I'm assuming because I, at that age did not have the, I had conviction about some of those things and I felt real strongly about my values, but I didn't have the maturity to realize that my parents as authority figures were like wrong. you know. Um, well, and of course you didn't because, yeah. you know, our parents are our cultural editors yeah. And that messaging sometimes can be really wonky if they don't agree with what we love or what we want to do. Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate enough to have parents who really supported me in all of my creative endeavors and made much of it, which created a different problem for me, as totally. I mentioned earlier, because right. if you if you all of a sudden are staking your your value on whether you succeeded that thing that they think you're so intelligent at or talented at, that's yeah. a different kind of problem. Totally. But um yeah, no, I, I'm just finishing up um, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, which is... I have also read that. Yeah. <laughs> We're such like, a, we've got the same reading we list. We do. I love it. We've got, <laughs> we've got the same library, it sounds like. But I love the idea that growth mindset is not just about being open-minded. It's about recognizing that leaning into hard things with the expectation that you're going to get better outcomes and that you have what it takes to work at that yeah. um, is, is kind of the pathway to... Um, success. And when you start to worry that um, you're not going to be as loved or validated or admired or whatever, if you don't succeed at that thing that you identify as being sort of your thing, yeah, that's tricky. I talk about this with my guests on this podcast so much. And I, the thing, you know, the, my takeaway from mindset and um, I don't know if you've read like grit, but like all these kinds of or outliers, you know, like all of these, 
these things that talk about like our inherent value and how it's, you know, it's, it's unchanging as our skill sets are always changing. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I don't deal with any of that kind of stuff. And I think it's because my parents were so unsupportive. Like I never got that attachment to validation. So it's a weird, it's a weird mismatch. It's like mishmash. Anyway, um, I, I have like these kind of art scars from like not being valued, but I always had a growth mindset because there was never any of that attachment that like you experienced. Right. So it's a real, like, I don't know, again, it's a place for radical acceptance. Sure. (laughs) Just like, how did we get to the adulthood that we're in and what, like, where do we go from here? Um, but yeah, I think it's, I don't know, it, it helps me. Thinking about things from like both of those perspectives help helps me remember that, um, you know, we all have like things <laughs> like, oh, it's so true. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, there's an additional thing these days, which is that everyone's necks are like, I, I swear that as a species, we're going to end up with like a different human shape because yeah. everyone's always bent over their, their devices. Yeah. And one of the things we talk about a lot at my house and I don't know that I have it figured out, is the way in which just consuming other people's ideas, other people's content, other people's imaginings mm-hmm. in some way um, sort of eventually cuts off access to like, like I'll ask my kids, well, what, what are your thoughts? What, what, you know, I just want them to be in touch with their own big imaginations. Yeah. Um, and of, of course, because my parents read to me and loved books, I've done that with my kids and um, I used to say books are friends. It felt like a really cheesy little mantra for a mom to be using. But I mean, as adults, my kids will it's so tell, true. yeah, they will tell me, no, you were right. Yeah, Actually, they, that's really sweet. They are friends. So, I mean, I'm interested in stories. Yeah. That's what I love to create. I'm interested in the kinds of pathological stories that we end up telling ourselves as a yeah. result of art scars or wonky parenting or whatever. I'm also interested in the idea of restoring. And I think that that's part of the work that I want to do in the world is use my story craft, such as it is, to help people imagine telling themselves a different story. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to know everything. Um, Will you tell me, like, just whatever kind of points you feel are, um, like, noteworthy in this conversation between, you know, your, um, realization as a child that you had this thing and where you are now, like what, what happened in your creative, um, development in your art, art identity, creative identity, um, between, you know, your teen self and maybe like starting Lotomus. Sure. Um, Well, I went off to college and studied English um, and then went to graduate school and studied some more English. I have a master's degree in British and American Lit and um, and read also a lot of um, I studied rhetoric as well. So like the the tone, the voice, the style in which you craft your message. And I feel now in retrospect, like that was actually one of the most um, useful tools kind of in my graduate schooling was learning like how to style a message so that it lands with the right audience. But 
went off and I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Like, cause I also think that's very interesting. Just yeah. what would you want the listener? I mean, so I interview artists from all different mediums. And one of the things I love is hearing artists talk about like what is special about their medium. And I, I had an English teacher, like my AP English teacher in my junior year of high school, who was really excited about rhetoric. Um, and it, it like had a huge impact on me. So I feel like I, I kind of know what you're talking about, but I would love to hear you reflect on like what that means, like what, what that power is, like what it can do, just whatever. You know, you I think. think it's the recognition, um, that when we're trying to communicate something that's important to us, there's a, there's an impulse behind that. Is it just to delight a listener? Is yeah. it to teach them? Is it to persuade them? And then there are these different, it's like you have this quiver with these different mm-hmm. um, tools that you can use depending on what you want to happen with your yeah. message and how you want it to land and resonate. Um, of course, as a you know graduate student in English, I, I wrote a lot of argument stuff. I feel yeah. like that's the the main sort of rhetorical form that you you have to get good at, right? Because you have to, you know, pick some kind of approach to a text. You have to write about that text. I can remember one time writing a paper. It was a Derridian, as in Jacques Derrida, the literary theorist. It was a Derridian reading of Sir Philip Sidney's Apology for Poetry. Wow. And it was a really weird approach, but I thought, no, this, that's, this kind of works. So, you know, you craft this argument and I remember getting a really good grade from a teacher who was notorious for not giving really good grades and feeling great about that. But, you know, there again, here I am so happy about the grade when really what I should have been happy about is that I was able to sort of like take this, yeah. uh, take these two very disparate texts from different centuries and kind of braid them into this, um, you know, argument. Yeah, like you executed your vision for this, yeah. this thing. Yeah. That's a great feeling. It it was a great feeling. And I, 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 you know, in the intervening years, it's also been a great feeling to, you know, be a teacher. I'm a former assistant professor of English. I taught at a community awesome. college for six years in California. Awesome. And I love teaching my students to, um, well, to help them try to master that rhetorical forum argument. Um, and then I left off teaching when I was having babies. And there was a long period, which for me was, it, it felt very dry from a creative perspective. Yeah. And I, I had to reckon with that all the time because, um, I mean, I live in a culture where motherhood is sort of, um, recognized as the, you know, this, this super high and sacred calling. And it is, I yeah. believe that. Yeah. But the idea that somehow in order to be on duty in my home, I had to leave off yeah. teaching or doing other things that were important to me. I, I question that now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely in retrospect reading against the grain of that narrative and recognizing I, I s- sacrificed something that I needn't have yeah. in order to feel like I was doing a good job at home. Um, can I ask, sorry, yeah. can I ask quickly, we'll come back to here. So sure. motherhood re- retrospect on this narrative. Um, I want to know what your, what the state of your, creative and artistic identity was like in this kind of school and graduate school period. Um, just because I'm really interested in like how creative development and artistic development, um, lines up with human development. Sure. And this kind of like early adulthood is such a, an important time. Um, and even, you know, declaring a major can be like a big 
you know, a big branch. Oh, totally. It's like you're staking out this terrain for yourself, right? That this is going to be your place, your space. Yeah. Um, You know, I remember, so there was an essay contest um, uh, that, I mean, it would happen every year. And I don't remember what the foundation or the the organization was that sponsored it, but it had a big prize. It had a big cash prize. Cool. And my last year of graduate school, uh, one of my friends said to me, you should write an essay for this because yeah. we were tentatively planning a trip to Europe. Cool. Three of us, <laughs> all married, but no, no kids yeah. yet. Okay. And so I thought I'm going to give it a try. And for the first time in graduate school, I was doing something completely creative yeah. in an attempt uh, to try to like in a bid to get that cash prize. Right. right. And it was a personal essay. And so I won second place which was $1,100. And I was able to go to Europe actually, because I, you know, suddenly I had this little check in my hands. Um, I don't know whether it's more difficult for women to give themselves permission to continue to unfold this creative life alongside whatever else they're doing. I, I suspect that in some cultures, maybe it is. And I just think it's essential for us, maybe just circling back to the motherhood thing. If you choose that, if that's your path, that you also um, carve out space, time, energy in your life to keep pursuing whatever makes your heart race artistically and to keep um, sort of um, working on your craft to give yourself permission to do that. It's really crazy that you're saying this because I just like in the half hour before you got here was starting to write an essay about how gender affects like our, um, what kind of creative pursuits we'll like allow ourselves to take. So that's like, that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a thing yeah. that's happening in this moment. That's cool. Um, yeah. What do I want to ask? Like, I mean, I think maybe the thing that I, that I would love to hear is how you, like how you were able to to reckon with those ideas and kind of step into that at that point in your life. And then I'm hearing that like it's, you know, was happening again later kind of after you had kids, but um, just, you know, in this time in your life when you're in grad school, do you have maybe advice for people who are in that time in their development and that time in their lives for, um, you know, staying in their creative values or kind of honoring, um, you know, their, what they, what they see as kind of like their essential parts of their being. You know, I love that you use the phrase creative values. I don't know that I ever got clear about those early on. And I think I saw my graduate work as, um, a path to a job and a salary. And, you know, at one point sort of this work life, um, or professional life that I was, um, heading into, I wish that I would have gotten clear about why I wanted to write. And oddly enough, it wasn't until I'd left off teaching and had a couple kids that I decided, you know what, I think maybe I want to do a little detour into kid lit. And so I, I sat down one day and again, it was a, it was a moment kind of like the moment from my childhood when I just had this idea that kind of tickling my brain. And I thought, what would that look like if I, if I did that? And it was, it was to use, um, it's called a cumulative rhyme. Okay. Like the house that Jack built. Okay. I thought, what if I took all my favorite Shakespeare characters and I just displayed them for a really young reader by way of this cumulative rhyme. And so I sat down and I kind of dashed off this manuscript and I sent it to Green Willow and I'd done some research on which of the houses or imprints I might want to 
try to sell this manuscript to. And I just lucked out about 10 days later, I got a call from the um, then executive editor of Green Willow Books. And she said, this is a really unusual little piece. And I've already showed it to an illustrator who wants to do it. And so we'd like to buy your book. So that that was a happy little, um, I don't know, moment in what was otherwise a bit of a desert for me. Okay, yeah, um, like a rea- a, um, affirmation or something. Creatively, yeah, yeah. And so um, it was really a, a lovely experience to actually get to meet Anita Lobel, who illustrated the book a couple of years later in New York, um, and to have this relationship with this editor. And I just think if you're feeling nudged, moved, whatever. If you're, if you're, I think Liz Gilbert calls them our genies, right? Um, if they're talking to you, honor that, get quiet, listen. And even if you don't know where they're telling you to go with that, get into your craft. If you're a writer, then hands on the keyboard. If you're a dancer, whatever, like you're in your space where you dance, or if you sing, um, you know, you're, you're, I don't know, you're practicing your vocal technique. So be, be in your craft. Yeah. Cause I think it's easier to sort of, um, dial in or connect with, I I'm calling it the shimmer today. Um, if you're in your craft. Yeah. So don't get out of your craft. Right, right, right. Totally. Totally. Just like touching down on those things, like making contact, um, so that you don't miss those, right. Those ideas, uh, when they come or, you know, um, yeah, Liz Gilbert uses these, these words, like she talks about ideas as like these, like beings almost that will nudge you and then find another, another soul to nudge. Oh no, totally. That story yeah. about how she's talking to Ann Patchett, mm-hmm. who wrote a book that I loved called Bel Canto. And Liz had decided to pass on an idea. Yeah. And then. Lo and, and behold, Ann Patchett's book. Ann Patchett's <laughs> book. No, and it's uncanny, <laughs> yeah, absolutely uncanny that like Ann Patchett had all, the outline for the story is the exact same as yeah, Liz Gilbert's. Yeah. So cool. But the idea chose somebody else because right. Liz the had taken a little like, hiatus. You took a pass on me, so <laughs> I'll take a pass on you. No, and I absolutely 100% believe yeah. the same thing. Yeah, I think so too. Um, or at very least that like I, those ideas deserve, like they deserve honor. Yeah. Um, I was talking with another another guest a couple of weeks ago and she said something about how like there's there's nothing there's nothing like sadder than wasted motivation, like motivation ignored or motivation unfulfilled. And yeah, I feel that really strongly. So okay, so you were in grad school and not quite sure what your creative values were. Then in teaching, I'm sure that's building. Then you pause teaching for a little while to have kids. And then please tell me more about this kind of, um, re reattaching to your creative values in, in this, um, I don't know, like re reimagining your narrative. Yeah, no, I think, um, that self narrative, who are we as a creative? What, what is our craft and how do we want to be in that? I just think that's an important question to keep asking ourselves. Um, I did take a long pause and it wasn't until I, um, took up a meditation practice six years ago okay, and was using that to deal with some crises in my life that I thought, because uh, I recognized that I had a couple of kids, my kids, who could use and benefit from meditation, but I knew they would never uh, be interested in the kind of monastic practice that I was doing at the time. I thought, I have to find a way to hang a story on this. Yeah. So there was a moment one night where my daughter, um, who was 16 at the time, 
came to me really distressed. She was sort of overworked. She had a friend who was dealing with some suicidal ideation and she was trying to kind of massage that relationship and help this friend. She was trying to hit all the marks on her college resume. She was um, kind of a mess. And I thought, okay, she needs a story where she can be the main character, where this can feel like a first person lived experience. So she, she crawled up on this bench next to me that I have at the foot of my bed. And I started into a story. I said, first of all, let's, let's try a little meditation. But I said, don't worry, this is going to feel really effortless. So I told her a story about being this journeyer, this seeker and wandering into this, you know, field where there was this creature with her face to the ground. She's kind of huddled up in a fetal position. And and my daughter, the main character, the avatar, the seeker, notices this creature and and approaches her and then kneels down in front of her. And of course, I'm the teller, sort of unfolding this narrative experience for my daughter, but I'm using second person pronouns. Like you, you're doing this, you kneel okay. down, you place your hands on the shoulder blades of this creature because you can see that it's a fairy and that her wings have shorn off. Yeah, okay. And yeah. She can no longer fly. So here's this little damaged creature. I wanted it to feel not overly precious or cloying. I wanted it to feel like a fantasy, but a lived experience, like a real experience. So I said, and you're imagining, you know, as you place your hands on the shoulder blades of this little creature, that all of a sudden now, um, here come new wings sprouting from the back of this creature. And And I said, and now imagine that the creature has vanished and you feel wings sprouting from your own shoulder blades lifting you off the ground and and pumping and lifting you into the air. The whole idea was to take her from being like this healer to feeling healed by way of a meditative experience that involved a first person story. How did you think of this? It was another, I I would just call it a moment of channeling something, a moment of shimmer. Um, And of course, by now she's sobbing and she crawls into my lap and says, hey, will you hold me? (laughs) And I said, yeah. So, you know, all five foot nine of her, she's in my lap. And I just held her till she was done crying. But I started doing that um, with other kids. I spent a year down at the state mental hospital in Provo working with a group of middle grade boys um, and teaching them this practice. At the time, I was just calling it a story meditation practice. And of course, because I'm still a literary researcher and read a ton, both fiction and nonfiction, I thought, I need to find out, do other people do this? Like, what's the precedent? Yeah, what what is this that I'm doing? What does this look like? And so, and it's different somehow, very different from just like sort of guided meditation. Sure. Um, Some of my beta listeners have said that it feels like watching a game play through yeah except that they are the avatar that's cool in fact one young man who was a computational linguistics major um he'd listen to a couple of the meditations and then when he came over to my house for a meal that was the trade he got access to the content and i had him be a listener in exchange for a really good meal but um (laughs) he said i want to show you something first and he popped open my laptop and had me open up a browser tab and had me go to youtube and had me find this um, game playthrough for the Sony PlayStation game Journey, okay. Okay. which is a really beautiful game. Um, and it's a, it's a game about it. It's a journeyer. Yeah. And he said, this is the playthrough that Sony, the game developer, created. So he said, it's especially seamless and beautiful. Just watch it for a few minutes. So we did that. And then he said, okay, that's enough. So shut the laptop. And he said, I wanted you to see this. 
because he said, usually when I come home from school and it's been like a really hectic day, I might wind down or de-stress by watching a game playthrough. Mm. And he said, but there's always a way in which I know that I'm not, I'm not really ever the avatar. I'm just watching the avatar. So mm. it's a step removed. Right. He said, I like your meditations because in your stories, I am the avatar. Right. That's right. happening to me. It feels like lived experience. It's really cool. So how were you, can I ask like, before we kind of talk about specifically developing the company and the, the, I don't know, is company the word you, you use? Is there a word you like better? The no, practice? I think that works. Yeah. The okay. practice. Yeah. Um, how were you thinking about story before this? Cause I'm sure this doesn't come out of Oh, that's nowhere. a really good question. Yeah. You know, I think just going back to my childhood, I, I had a practice as a child of making myself a journeyer in my own made up stories. Tell, tell us more. Yeah. So I was often in my own imagination. And I think the stories that I made up for myself were inflected by stories that I had read. I particularly love stories about girls who journeyed. Yeah. So the um, old time. Un, undisnified version yeah. of um, Snow Queen or, right. you know, um, East of the Sun, West of the Moon. These are girl journeyers who yeah. said, you know, like they, they struck off on their own into unfamiliar terrain and they were yeah. resourceful and clever and fearless. And those kinds of stories really always resonated with me. And so, in, you know, often to put myself to sleep at night, maybe as a self-soothing technique, maybe yeah. because it was really enjoyable. I don't know, but I made up stories all the time this and is, they featured me as yeah. this character doing some of the same kinds of things I'd read yeah. about, but new ones too. This is so beautiful. Um, I feel like, I mean, I, I also did a similar like self-soothing, like I love to read fantasy. Like as you're saying this, I'm like, I totally did that too. And the fact that I did that too makes me think a lot of children probably do that. The the thing that is like crazy to me a little bit is that like you were able to kind of like self-reflect on this thing that like I think our kind of private coping mechanisms, especially ones that are not tangible, like they don't exist in a physical space, they exist in like our minds are kind of incidental to a lot of us. Like they're not things that we think about. So can you tell me, like, are, are you able to tell me how you thought of that, how you realized, like, this is a practice that I'm doing is self-soothing that's helpful to me. I can help other people do this. Like, how did you do that? You know, I think that moment came again when I had taken up a meditation practice. I'd been doing it for about a year and I was doing something more like I say, monastic, I was just observing my thoughts, trying to get very still and very quiet. But when this daughter was in crisis, my first instinct, mm. it was instinct, nothing yeah. more, was to take her and put her in a space where she could do what I had always done, right. which like, was... I know how to do this. Imagine herself as the journeyer. Mm. And so it was kind of this moment where all my training and all these intersections that I had sat in over the years right. just... Um, I don't know, things kind of came together. And I mean, incidentally, I, I, I did the practice with my son for much longer than I ever did it with my daughter. Mm -hmm. He was younger, yeah, but in a gifted program, yeah, yeah, which was unfortunately um, really demanding, but not especially enriched. Okay. okay. And he was super stressed out. And so I, I created all kinds of stories for him where wow. he could be, he could understand himself to be the main character, the journey or the seeker. And 
at some point, I hope to develop some of those stories That's so cool. for Lodimus. Um, yeah. But they often involved him being off by himself in some kind of fantasy North country with a dog. Cool. Um, you know, like a wolf dog. Yeah, yeah. And it had a name. It it was was called Faultless, you know? The dog was Faultless. And they would go off and have all these experiences together. And there was always some moment of, like, personal wisdom that I wanted him to be able to capture at the end of the story. Mm. And I wanted it to feel lived. I wanted it to feel real. So one of the things that I try to do now as I'm, I don't know what the word is, like, um, helping this practice come into being cultivating cultivating yeah. i i want it to feel very sensorily immediate and real cool. and lived so i'm always referring to what people are hearing or seeing or even you know touching or tasting or smelling because i feel like that enhances the sense that even though they're only in their own mind terrain only yeah. um it's a powerful place to be but that it is real yeah so um, um. I wanted to, I want to like capture this whole kind of like creation story of your business. I just have one last question, sure. bef- but like before, will you just talk about like the hero's journey as an archetype, what it means, why you felt significant about it, like maybe even kind of before you started building the business, like sure. just for the listener. Just well, and you're probably familiar with, you know, um, Joseph Campbell. A little bit. Hero yeah. with a thousand faces. And I remember studying archetypes in graduate school and being super fascinated, obviously. Yeah. Now, you know, some of my backstory, you know, I would be so interested in the idea of archetypes. But, um, you know, the world over, as, as long as humans have been kind of awake and aware on this planet, um, they've, they've been storying yeah. and they've been interested, we as a race have been interested in these different archetypal figures who are characters in, in our stories. So there's the, mm-hmm. there's the journeyer who has this um, thirst for adventure, right? And goes off uh, adventuring. So in Odysseus, right? Yeah. Or in East of the Sun, West of the Moon, right. the character's name is the Lassie. Uh, it's kind of bothersome. I realized that she didn't have an actual name. Yeah. Um, she's just the Lassie. But <laughs> She's the one who goes and saves the prince. Wow. She rescues him. Mm. So so there's the hero journeyer. And that journey, whether we're talking about stories from America or Africa or um, Europe or um, Asia, they all have very similar components. Yeah. There's, a, there's a person who feels this call to go do something maybe um, yeah. really terrifying, but they answer the call. And as soon as they answer the call, everything changes. Yeah. Life is now a totally different proposition and there are going to be setbacks and obstacles. And it's in that process of um, going around obstacles, finding resilient ways to deal with setbacks that the journey grows and evolves. And so at the end of the journey, usually they've, they have accomplished much and sometimes discovered something or or um, captured something that now is theirs because they've yeah. paid the price, the, the journey, um, to be able to, to gather that wisdom at the end. Um, so that's the hero journeyer. And I feel yeah. like there's one in all of us. Yeah. It's a question of kind of waking up to what kind of hero journeyer right. am I? Yeah. Uh, maybe the, I don't have like a, a literary background like you do. Like I don't, I, I like... I know like just enough about these things to know that I don't know much and to like be curious, but, um, you know, I was just, I'm, I'm just 
trying to think. I've, I was really struck by the way that you um, identified yourself as a seeker, like, you know, and that's almost like an archetype too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I'm wondering, you know, like as we're thinking about these stories, like there's the hero, like, you know, there's often like the hero's companion. Um, there's often like an oracle, you know, there are kind of like these, these other roles in these kinds of stories um, that I'm sure we all identify with you know, more or less or on and off or depending on the situation. And I, I'd like to ask you, do you think that these, like the way we kind of identify um, or see ourselves as like different archetypes, do you think those things are like inherent or do you think, or something else? No, that's a, such a good question. I think that if we get quiet, we can kind of touch into who, who am I? What's my role? I think Unfortunately, um, for women especially, you know, society's got these roles. And because our parents aren't the only cultural editors in our lives, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's these other voices sometimes urging us to step into roles that um, might limit us in certain ways. So I think it's so crucial for women in particular to be aware of, like, who do I want to be? Yeah. What, what what do I want my story to be? How do I unfold that? What resources do I need to make yeah. sure that this is the life that I craft for myself? Because I think you're right. Women are often, they're the love interest or they're the object yeah. or they're the companion or... Or maybe, I think I think that the oracle figure is also often a female. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, some kind of like a, you know, like wise presence. Sure. Like a like a a wise crone or something. And I'm interested in those female archetypes. So women magicians, alchemists, um, Mm -hmm. women journeyers, women healers. uh, I'm interested in women as subjects rather than objects. Do you feel ultimately like these things are kind of choices? Like you were using, I just forgot, but you were using words like, like craft maybe like, like how do we, like come into the roles that we're kind of like choosing like what do you think is the relationship between like kind of the 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 choices you know the the things that we're trying to cultivate or try to embody and maybe the things that we kind of just come with as like little tiny child beings oh that's such an interesting question too I I guess there's no answer I know I I know and I think (laughs) I think each of us does though I personally believe each of us does have a a, a bit of a, like something essential that, yeah. that c- comes with us as we enter this portal and, and have this human experience. Um, I think one of the keys is just bringing awareness to what lights you up. Yeah. What makes your heart race? What, what makes you feel light and expanded and like everything is possible? What makes you want to laugh out loud? Yeah. What, I mean, when I hear, we were talking about jazz earlier, you know, my family can tell you I have jazz, some form of jazz on every day of my life, just about. And there's something that that does for me. Um, And I think a lot of people are very disconnected from that. Maybe Mm -hmm. they've bought into narratives about what they think they should do and be. Right. That were kind of handed down to them. Like... Yeah, I, I I think I know what you mean. I mean, I think I like jazz for a similar reason. Like, 
the fact that it's improvisational, it's so like ever changing and kind of alive and impermanent. That's always been the thing about it that like, you know, jumpstarts me. Um, well, and it's complicated too. I mean, like yeah. any story, you, you want your story to have some complexity. Yeah, it's layered. It is so layered. And one of my favorite things with jazz music is to sit and listen for these moments of tension and resolution. Mm -hmm. And I like them to be complex and unexpected. And I, that's yeah. why I like certain jazz artists, because I know I'm going to have that desire for um, tension and resolution yes. satisfied in really complex and elegant yes. ways. Like it's, it's challenging in a really satisfying way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a um, there's a collaboration that Yo-Yo Ma does with some Brazilian jazz artists. Mm. The album is called Obrigado Brasil. Cool. And there's a track, and I wish I could remember the name of it, but there's there's such a just achingly beautiful tension and then this just equally um, shimmery resolution in that particular song. And I've listened to it more times than I can count because something in me wants that. Yeah. And I think it's the same way with stories. We want... We want that tension. Our brains want that tension. Yeah. I mean, there's so much neuroscience now that talks about how our brains are expectation and prediction machines. Mm -hmm. And we want to we want to know how is this going to resolve? Right. Because based on my past expectations, it might go this way. And right. it's so fun when it limits. doesn't. It's so yeah. fun when it goes a different way, totally. a, a way that you didn't expect. That's, I'm going to have to think about that more. That's cool. That's a cool idea. Yeah, I think... I know I crave that. I mean, I, we were just start before I pushed record. I think we were just starting to talk about, I was going to say that part of the reason I started this podcast is because like, it feels like an essential part of my creative process to have these conversations with people who say things to me that make me go like, Hmm. You know, like, oh, I totally agree. <laughs> that like stretchy, yeah. like it's such a privilege, honestly, to connect with people who want to talk about their is. Their art, their craft, and yeah. what that looks like for them to. I say that all the time. I'm yeah. like so grateful. Like it's it's it's. And then now that I've now that I have this, like now that this, you know, I have a conversation like this about once a week, and now that this is like tucked into like my life in in such a way, like, gosh, I cannot imagine like going back, um, because it's it's become something that like, I really rely on for like that kind of, I don't know weekly daily sparkle well and especially now in a kind of a closed off pandemicized world to yes. be able to have these frank and honest and kind of improvisational yeah. conversations with people yeah. whose ideas might intersect with yours or or sometimes they inform really yours don't and it is also so cool right like sometimes i sit down to have these conversations and realize really quickly that like i have very little in common with the person that i'm talking to and um you know, maybe there's just like, there's just miscommunication kind of at every turn. Like there's just tension, like in the conversation or, or I really feel like I have to be like, turn the empathy, like up, 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 or like focus or, you know, try to, I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes uh, these interviews take a lot out of me. <laughs> and I feel like that's also like a really important part of like a creative practice. Like it, it gives me like a regular opportunity to practice like it helps you build a certain kind of muscle. That radical acceptance. Yeah. Like, what is this conversation that I'm in right now? And like, how can I just be present in it? And it's, I don't know, I really value it. Yeah. Um, will you talk about how you decided to turn this idea that you had for helping your children 
um, into a business and just tell me everything. Yeah, about that's it. funny. That I mean, that was my husband, who's kind of a veteran entrepreneur. Cool. He started a couple of businesses, and um, we sold our interest in both of those. And you know, he's always looking for that idea that he thinks maybe has some promise. And so I was telling him one day at the breakfast table, it was just the two of us, kids were at school, and I was telling him what I'd been doing with my youngest, Silas. And he stopped eating and he looked up at me, you know, like his forks kind of in midair. And he said, you know, this is kind of special. Like maybe, maybe this could be something. And I, like, I knew knew what he meant when he said that. And I thought, oh no, like, let's keep this not about monetization. Let's keep this about something deeply personal and maybe therapeutic that I'm just giving kind of as a gift to my children. Well, you know, famous last words. So yeah. it was the next year that I started working with the boys at the state mental hospital. And then after that, I I did some other work with um, junior high age kids and then college age kids and early feedback from beta listeners seemed to indicate that this was really landing with 20 somethings. Yeah. So I did a bit of a pivot and the stories that I've developed. Oh, there he is. There's Bear. There yeah. is Bear. Bear, come in. Come in, Bear. He wants to so bad. You can come He's in, Bear. too scared. It was terrifying for me, honestly, to mix what felt very pure and so, um, well, I'm, I'm finding that words are, are not coming to me. Like sacred almost. Yeah. And, and try to make money doing it. And so I've had to, I've had to reckon with this idea, like, is it okay to have a spiritual practice and you're trading on that and making money? And I think one of the things that convinced me it would be okay to give that a try was, my work with the kids at the state mental yeah. hospital. So these were all kids who had been diagnosed with some form of mental illness. They'd all been abused, some really seriously. Yeah. And having that very linear hero's journey story yeah. that would sort of take over their brain for the time that I was doing this with them and teaching it to them, it was fascinating to see what happened. Wow. Some of them were bouncing off the walls when I got there and then they could be still. Some of them would fall asleep, kids who maybe otherwise were never able to sleep. And so, and that was fine. Like a couple of them would topple over after listening for five minutes. And so I think it was the, the linearity of the story. Yeah. It was a sense of I'm your guide. Totally. It's okay to feel safe now because for this time, this story is going to support you. Or focus Mm -hmm. or something. And cool. And I also began to see that it could look like something mm-hmm. for a person to imagine himself as strong and empowered and gritty and yeah. resilient, especially if in his real life he felt weak and disempowered right. and out um, of control. Yeah, and yeah. out of control. Yeah. But it's so much more than just like behavior modification, really. Right. It's about. Right. It's about the restory. Story modification. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So what is it now? Like, is it, are they, are they mostly guided meditations or do you like, is it like a skill that you're teaching? Like what, what's, what does it look like? You know, it's sort of become both. The meditations feel very much like world building meets meditation. Sure, sure. So for people in the gaming world, they get exactly what I'm trying yeah. to do. Awesome. Interestingly enough, um, there's one that takes place, for example, in a fantasy Paris, Um, And it involves another character, a guide, and a mysterious ball of light. Um, And the journey or avatar is searching for for sound. Their heart is hungry for sound. I feel like you would love that meditation because um, the journey eventually is able to sort of like 
um, it's as if there's this auditory like zoom in to yeah. like musical sounds that are going on around the cool. city. Cool. And then there's a transfer of power and the ball of light at the end of the meditation. So that's called Night in Paris. There's one that takes place in a fantasy New York called cool. Snow Pavilion. There's one that involves um, a journeyer in search of an oracle awesome. who is actually a child, a, wow. a wise child. So yeah, these are, but it's, it's not really accurate to say that they're fantasy meditation experiences because that sounds a little sketchy almost. Yeah. Um, but these are first person uh, meditation moments cool. that take the listener on a journey, on a hero's journey. Um, do you ever, so, and so you'll, you'll never want to make this visual. Is that right? Like, like the YouTube thing or, yeah, or I, maybe we've talked about getting on that platform and I, I've resisted it from yeah. the beginning. And it sounds like your instinct is right about that. Like, I think as soon as it exists outside of someone's physical being, then it's there once removed, like you said, but no, the, the magic is in what happens between what my team and I have created. Yeah. And the imagination of right. the listener. That seems like an important component. And that goes back to like reading that you it, love. No, it totally does. Yeah. And so I guess in a way that's what I'm trying to give people is a kind of reading experience yeah. that feels so immediate, like so now, and where they're doing things maybe that in real life they can't imagine themselves doing. Right. Yeah. So. And it's like, it's, it's maybe fantastical enough that it's just a beautiful experience, like heightened. I hope so. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there are some other apps in the meditation space, of course, Headspace and Calm, doing beautiful things. Yeah. I honor what they're doing. Hopefully, you know, we're, we're trying to differentiate ourselves enough from that. And we Seems don't necessarily different. even want everyone to listen, yeah. but people who are story lovers, music lovers, yeah. tech lovers, big imaginers, creatives. Yeah. That's our audience, hopefully. Yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, people who are not, um, like, moved by things that maybe, like, feel like, for lack of a better term, like, new age, maybe. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, better or worse, like, we have associations with things, you know? Like, if if um, fantasy, for example, feels like a safe, trusted space, that's going to work better than, you know, I don't know, like... I, maybe this is not quite the same thing, but like, you know, I have bad experiences with religion. So even sometimes things that have any sort of iconography or something, you know, it just is going to hit me or someone like me in a different way where someone who doesn't have attachment to those things will hit them in a different way. And I'm sure it's the same with um, like monastic approaches or things like that. Like there are just different associations. So no, I can totally relate to that. Honestly, yeah. I, I feel like, um, those neural associations can sometimes affect whether we're going to feel safe totally. doing something or totally unsafe doing it. And Absolutely. so this, I think, is landing in a big way with people who have strong, positive, limbic associations with story. Totally. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. I love it so much. Um, is there anything that you want to say kind of, you know, just where you are in your life now about your kind of personal, like, you know, your kind of personal vulnerable relationship with creativity and art. Oh, I think Where one of the coolest you? things I've discovered is that, and I really like Liz Gilbert believe that creativity is like this, this field of intelligence. Just, I think of it as this, like this teeming ocean of every imaginable kind of idea for anything you could ever want to do or make. I feel like it's all around us. Like it's just 
right there. Um, one of my great discoveries doing this is that like, I feel like that awareness, if I want to call it that, it meets us. It waits for us. Mm-hmm. It. I know this sounds like total magical thinking, but I am a magical I'm thinker. I'm so into it. Yeah, I'm right I am there a with you. really big magical <laughs> thinker. I mean, I always have been, but I think people have to trust that there is not just space for what they want to do or, or, or make, but that this field of awareness actually is actively helping them along. It's like Liz Gilbert says in Big Magic. Um, these creative ideas want to get made yeah. and they want to get made by you. Yeah. And if you say yes to an idea, and this has been my big takeaway, my big learning from doing something that actually has required a lot of bravery, <laughs> it's that when you say yes, yeah. here will come all kinds of um, help. So that you can execute on that big dream you have. And sure, there's a lot of, you know, there's work involved. Um, There's, I don't know if you know the author, Mark Monson, who wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F-U-C-K. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did. I I listened to the audio book. Well, I was just actually, I was just talking about this with my bandmates like last week. But I I, uh, listened to that book while I was driving to a gig in Montana. So I think it's like a 10 hour listen. It was about a 10 hour drive. It's such a good book. And I arrived at the gig like in a totally different like, right? I mean, I was not giving a fuck. No, (laughs) there's something about that book. And he talks in there about about how when you decide, okay, here's this thing you want to do. And people ask, well, can I or is it right for me? Or... And he said, that's not the right question. The right question is like everything you might choose to do has a particular set of problems that's going to come with it. Right. Liz Gilbert calls it the shit sandwich. Absolutely. The shit sandwich. (laughs) And the question really is what flavor do you want? Right. Which kind of shit sandwich do you prefer? So with all of the, because inevitably there are problems. If you're going to show up for the creative idea that has chosen you and you've said yes, there are going to be all kinds of problems. And with this, it's been, you know, we've had some technical challenges, um, which we are totally um, overcoming beautifully, thanks Good. to our amazing coding team. But, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And I've said to my husband and my kids, it's okay, because yeah. these are the problems that I chose. Right. These are the problems that I chose. Ugh, I love that feeling. I, I, I feel like that's something I'm grateful, like it comes pretty naturally to me, like when I'm motivated and excited about a project and those challenges come, I don't even get that scared of them. Cause I'm just like, this is, I want to figure this out. Right. Um, can you tell me just kind of lastly, um, what that like, you know, in, in a kind of a personal way and not like in a, um, we, the business team, but like for you, Becky, what did that bravery like feel like to you? Like, how did you do it? Oh gosh. That's such a beautiful question because sometimes bravery looks like you're shaking with fear. I mean, there have been times, I don't know that I've even told anybody this, Emily, but there have been times when I literally was physically shaking with fear. There have been times when I've just had my knees pulled up to my chest thinking people have staked a lot on me and on this idea. I've staked a lot on it. And I love so much what I think it could become. I love maybe the impact that it could have, particularly for creatives. But so bravery looks like being so gentle with your fear. Yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, the beautiful uh, 
I just love his work, the Vietnamese um, Zen priest. Um, his book, Anger, talks about treating your anger like it's this, almost like it's this separate kind of um, cagey, damaged, in pain little person. Yeah. And so you're going to show up for that anger and you're right. going to just gently what do you lo need? love it. Yeah. Exactly. What do you need? And so recognizing that sometimes bravery means sitting with, you know, these really um, big fears that will inevitably erupt as you walk this hero's journey path to unfold what you feel called to unfold. And you're going to be so consistent and gentle with that fear. You're going to show up. You're going to, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mother. So I think sometimes of mothering my fear yeah, and saying, you know, darling thing, I am right here. That's I'm so Kristen right Neff. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Sorry, I interrupted you. That was so good. No, beautiful. I think I was done. I just yeah. think um, bravery, bravery, everybody said this, but it doesn't mean the absence of fear. It means you persist in spite of it. And what that looked like for me was talking to myself, yeah, yeah. the journeyer, the one who wanted to do this yeah. big thing and say, it's okay, I've got you. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I've got yeah, you. That's, uh, are you familiar with Kristen Neff? I don't she, think I am. So I, tell me if about you're her. Not, then you are by way of other authors. I these can't her, wait to discover I her. I think these are like her, some of her words that you're saying, but she, she's a researcher. I think she works at the university of Houston with Brene Brown, but she studies um, self-compassion and she's a Buddhist monk as well. Oh, I absolutely um, need to go order yeah, whatever she, she's written. She talks about like putting your hand on your chest and like pressing it there and saying like, darling, like, darling, you're okay. Like, what do you need? And she uses this word and she, she talks about like just saying these words like out loud to yourself, to like your fear, to your hurt. Um, it's like a beautiful, her, her book is called self-compassion, but. Well, I'm going to go order that good stuff. today. Yeah, it's really good stuff. Um, but you know, just, um, final footnote to this yeah. idea Please. of like, it matters how you talk to yourself, especially when you're trying to be brave. Um, I don't know if you know of the work of Dr. Srini Pillay. He's yeah. a Harvard neuroscientist, and he's got a book called Life Unlocked. It's about getting beyond fear and anxiety. And he talks about, from a neurological perspective, how powerful it is to talk to yourself like that, rather yeah. than saying, I'm going to be okay, saying, right. you're going to be okay. Um, naming yourself, talking mm -hmm. to yourself as if you're your own friend who needs your compassion and understanding and support. And so I've I've taken up that practice and sometimes I will say, okay, Becky, okay, back. <laughs> you got this baby. You're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and he says that what happens is there's some signaling in the brain, actually in the neurocircuitry of the brain wow. that is different when you talk to yourself in the second person like I that. I love that so much. Yeah. So you, your, yours, using those second person pronouns yeah. when you speak to yourself yeah. can make a difference. Um, how you believe it in your neurobiology yeah. in how you believe it. Cool. Absolutely. That's so awesome. I love it. And I know it to be true. Um, I I've done a lot of like kind of inner child stuff that like, that's really helpful for me to like, you know, value that like little Emily that like li still lives in my, like in my fear and also in my bliss, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. I always ask everybody at the end, unless there's anything else you'd like to say. Oh no, this has been such a great okay, conversation. Great. I Thank you. I have loved it too. And I have, I've been coming off this. I actually, I was, I was just thinking last night, I've had this really kind of busy, but beautiful week. I'm in the studio working on my new album and it's, it's been like just lovely. And, 
um, and was have made three music videos in the last five days. How? <laughs> Four days. Fun. Yeah. Anyway, and I was just thinking, like, I know this conversation with Becky tomorrow is going to be like the perfect wrapper upper for like this beautiful creative week. Oh, I love that idea that a conversation could be like the little happy punctuation mark at the yeah, end, you know, the exclamation point or whatever. It feels that way to me, like genuinely. And I was, th- I, last night I went to bed, like I was really tired and I just went to bed thinking like, yeah, that there's just going to be like this perfect bookend to this week. And it has just, it just has been oh, that. I love so. it. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Hooray. But I always ask everybody two questions at the very end. First, on this day, what is your dream collaboration? Who would you love to work with? You can pick anybody. I can pick anybody. Or build a team if you like. Wow. You know, I honestly think I'd love to bring in some more music. Um, I'd love to bring in some vocal music artists, in fact. Um, I've had a long desire to create a mind journey where somebody self-heals and rediscovers their voice, reconnects with their voice by way of a mask building exercise. And I Mm -hmm. won't go into that long story, but um, our language center, our creativity and our trauma center are all sort of like it's this little almost like place in the brain where um, all those things happen there. Yeah. Couldn't tell you the name of that part of the brain. But um, and so I've been really interested in the, the work of a, um, a woman who helps people resolve trauma, particularly veterans, um, by silently building masks because she has mm-hmm. found that they they can't speak about their trauma their brain actually shuts down that yeah. that impulse to speak but through the exercise of their creativity and through mask building they wow. find their voice again so i it's an like idea that physical that's, masks physical masks cool yeah she's helped over a thousand veterans deal with the trauma of you know being in war and conflict yeah. through mask building so i've had this long desire to want to do a mask building journey cool. where the proposition is to find your voice again. And I've thought how beautiful it would be to have some singers wow. do just some vocalese work yeah, yeah. where it's not wordless um, vocals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wordless yeah. vocals. So that's, that's on my heart. Wow. I'd love to collaborate well, with some music yeah. artists. I would be down to do that. that well, that's a good thing cool. to know. Yeah. That is a really good thing to know. <laughs> um, that's what sounds like a dream. Um, and then finally, where can people find you and find your work and sure. find Lotimus? Thank you. So if they go to lotimus.com, it's L-O-T-I-M-U-S.com. Cool. Right now we're a web app, not an app app. Um, but we hope that in the next uh, few months, hopefully by maybe year's end, we will be an official app. Wow. Um, but yeah, lotimus.com. Amazing. Yeah, Becky, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been so beautiful. Oh, the pleasure has been all thank mine. You, thank thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.